We're starting a new series this weekend, and the idea there is really following through the Gospel of John. And John is really very good to us because he tells us why he wrote his whole Gospel. He tells us. And I want to read that, that, those verses to you. This is John chapter 20. They'll be up on the screen. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And this is what the Apostle John says. This is towards the end of the Gospel. And he says this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him you will have life uh, by the power of His name. So John is saying, I'm writing this gospel and I'm including miraculous signs or miracles so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one, the promised Messiah, the Savior, and that by believing in him, you'll have life. That's, he wants you to believe in him. And so we're going to follow those signs. There's seven signs in the gospel of John. And we're going to look at, take a week, each week, and we're going to look at one of those signs. And we're going to see how it points to the Messiah, but more importantly, it points to the Savior. And it shows not only the power of Jesus, but it tells us very interesting things. Because John uses the word sign, and it refers to miracles. It refers to, it points us to who Jesus is and why he came. And, And those are really two important things to know. And that's what John wants us to know. He wants us to know who is Jesus and what did he come for? Why did he come? So in John 2, we're going to see the first sign. And what Jesus does there is he turns water into wine. It's interesting to me that uh, the first sign was not healing a blind person. It wasn't feeding the poor. It wasn't stilling waters. It was providing wine for a wedding party, which is like, that doesn't seem, you know, it seems like minor league. You know, it's like, it almost seems like John's going, all right, we're going to start small here. We're going to do something really small. We'll build up to the resurrection thing. Uh, but that's really not the case. That's really not the case because every one of the signs John puts in there has a significance to it. What we want to do is want to look at the passage and we want to see the significance of the sign. And so that's what we want to do this weekend. We want to look at John chapter 2 where Jesus is invited to a wedding in Canaan. And he is there with his mother, his disciples are there, and they're at this wedding feast, and they run out of wine. And so I want to read you that passage. It's found in John chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 3. The wine supply uh, ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. And the question is, what's the big deal? You know, let's just run down to the store, uh, family beer and liquor store, and let's just pick up some more wine and let's just get on with it, you know. And, and, you know, or so what? You know, it's not a big deal. People will get over it. We'll serve something else. Well, weddings in this day were a big deal. They were much bigger. It's hard to believe they were a bigger deal than they are today in our culture, but they really were. And they were a bigger deal for a number of reasons. In the New Testament, wedding celebrations would last for days. I mean, you, 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 it, it, like you would parade, the couple would parade through the town and, and then they would have a, we, a wedding feast and it would last for days. Day after day after day. It wasn't like, okay, let's get married, let's have a reception and we're done with it. You know, we're done in a day. No, this was an ongoing celebration. This happened, this went on for days. Um, secondly, oftentimes the whole town was invited to come to the wedding 
celebration. It was a community event. It was celebrated by the community. The whole village was uh, uh, there. Uh, and wine was a very important part because wine made the festival a festival. Wine was a very important part of the whole celebration. Now, Mary comes to Jesus and she brings a request. And at the surface, it seems like a very basic request. It seems very like, uh, you know, Mary's somehow tied to this this married couple and to the family. And she feels as though Jesus can do something here. So she feels compelled to come to Jesus. Now, there's a number of uh, common misconceptions when we come to John chapter two about the the wedding feast. Uh for instance, uh, some people have said, well, the reason they ran out of wine is the disciples came and they didn't, they didn't uh, RSVP. And so they drank all the wine, you know, and, you know, there's all these, these guys coming and they're drinking all this wine and that's why they ran out of wine. I don't think that's the case. Um, some people say, well, it wasn't wine anyways, it was grape juice. And I remember sitting in Moody Auditorium uh, in uh, the, the, uh, during chapel and having J. Vernon McGee, some of you would know that name, many of you wouldn't, and I remember him saying, and if I can just imitate his, and I'm not doing this to make fun of him, I'm really not, but he was a man from Texas, and he said, my Lord would not turn water into wine. That's the way he said it. And he got a rousing support of amen. Um, however, I think he was wrong. Um, the other thing is, and this is probably one we look at a little bit more deeply is this seems to be a passage where some people in some traditions have taken it. If you really want to get things done with Jesus, go to his mother. Right. Talk to Mary. Right. I mean, there are people that would say, if you want to get Jesus ear, talk to Mary. And you say, well, why is it that some traditions pray to Mary? Well, it it roots back. Some of it roots back here. Some of it roots back here. But very interesting, um, I think all of those things are wrong. For instance, let me just settle it right now. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus was turning the water into actual fermented wine. And, and the reason I say that is the passage, the text. In John chapter 2, verse 10, uh, it says this. And your translation may say something a little different, but actually... Uh, the the tr- translation says accurately, it's not accurate or inaccurate, it's just more literal. Everyone serves the choice wine first, and then when the guests are a bit tipsy, that which is inferior. <clears throat> In other words, when people get drunk, they don't really care what they're drinking. So serve the good stuff first and save the best stuff, uh, you know, get the cheap stuff afterwards. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, the Greek is pretty clear here that we're talking about wine, something that you could get intoxicated by. That's very clear there. So Jesus turned this into fermented drink, which, which already speaks of a miracle because we know that it takes time for the process to, for juice to age into wine, right? But let's talk more specifically, because I don't really want to get into, to me the water and the wine or grape juice is kind of, I think the text takes care of that argument. You can disagree with me on that. Obviously, I'm disagreeing with J. Vernon McGee, and he was a better scholar than I am, but I think in this text it's very, pretty clear. That being said, I think I want to wrestle a little bit more with Mary coming to Jesus with this request. And notice his answer in verse 4. Notice the answer that Jesus gives in verse 4. He says, Dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. 
Now, uh, another translation, which is a little more literal, even gets a little bit more like chippy, if you would want to call it that. And it's a little more literal. And it says, Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, at face value, it seems as though what Jesus is doing is he's responding to his mother in a rather harsh manner. He's being pretty cold to her. He's not being loving. He's saying, you know, Mom, it's not time. You know, give me a little bit of... T-. He, no, it's none of that. He's, saying, he's just basically saying, hey, kind of back off. That's kind of what he's saying. No, so what is he in a bad mood? Um, our NLT translation, this is the Bible that we have in, in the chairs, it kind of softens it, and most of the translation softens it. What we will say is, it's in the Greek, it's very direct. He's basically saying to his mother, and he's saying, woman, what does that have to do with me? Some translations say, dear woman, and then what they're doing is trying to soften it. They're saying, well, it's not as harsh as it seems it is. And, and let me give you the other time that Jesus uses this phrase, woman. And when he, you know, he says, woman, it's not my, what does that have to do with me? It's not my hour. My hour has not yet come. Let me give you the other time Jesus uses the exact same construction in John chapter 19, verse 25. And at this time, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And he says to his mother, standing near the cross were, were Jesus' mother. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said, same thing, woman. Here is your son, or dear woman, here is your son. And I, so I don't think Jesus is trying to be cold. I, I think essentially what Jesus is doing is he's giving information to her. He's not trying to be mean to her. He's not trying to be disrespectful. He's just telling it what it is. And so on the cross, he's hanging there. He says, this is your son now. He will take care of you, essentially. Jesus is giving instruction to her mother. He's giving direct teaching. So St. Augustine has suggested, and I think this is very true, because I think, think about this, Mary carried Jesus for nine months. And she carried the, the, the shame, not only during her pregnancy, but after her, the birth. You know, in a sense that she was the one that, you know, you know, you're saying it's the Savior of the world. Really? Come on. Get over it. I mean, it's never happened in the history of time. And so she's waiting for him to come out and prove her. Who he is. St. Augustine suggested, and I think this is good, he said, Mary had to learn that her relationship with Jesus as his disciple was more important than her relationship as his mother. Mary had to learn that her relationship as his disciple was more important than her relationship as his mother. And that's part of what Jesus was trying to show her. Now, Jesus also used a very important phrase here. He says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. And John uses this phrase in a really specific way. It's a really technical way to use it. And when he says, my hour has not yet come, what he's talking about is his mission. His, the crescendo of his mission where he would climb up on a cross and be executed, be, be crucified as a common criminal and die on a cross in our place and take our sin. That's his hour of passion. That's what he's talking about. Um, he, he, so uh, he's looking forward to this hour, his mission, his passion, giving his life. And, and you'll see this again. It, this is in John chapter 12, verse 27, where he says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came, Father, to bring glory to your name. 
Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. There's very few times where the Father speaks from heaven. One is at his baptism. This is one of the other ones. And notice he says, my hour, my hour, my mission. Mary responds with faith. Mary does something very wise here. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, that, let's just stop and call a timeout just for a minute here at the Kennedy campus, at the UD campus. Let's call a timeout and say, those are very prophetic words to us today. Mary is saying to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. And I just want to suggest that Mary's words are for any servant of Jesus Christ today. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Isn't that part of our problem? That we know what he's told us to do, but we don't do it. Right? One of the signs of a true disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus said this, is not, one of the number one signs of a disciple is they obey his word. They obey him. They just follow his word. Jesus says, come follow me. All right. So we want to jump now to the jars because there's these water jars they have. And there's these, these um, six, you know, filled with a lot of water. And they, the water was for purification, for washing, and for uh, just, you know, just uh, religious cleanliness and things along those lines. So Jesus... Um, made the wine using these six water jars. The water from these jars were used for ceremonial uh, ritual cleansing. So they had to have a lot of water because the festival went for a lot of days. And so he takes the water. It's interesting, too, that there were six jars. There weren't seven. Seven in Scripture is seen as the word of perfection or completeness. Uh, it, you know, it's the bow is tied, number seven. Uh, you'll see that over and over and over. Notice in Revelation there's seven churches, you know. So it's, it's one of those things. But there's six large water jars, and they were used for purification and ritual. Um, the point is, the ceremonial cleansing water had, had, had its limitations for the purpose of spiritual cleansing. It could cleanse you temporarily, but you were needing to be cleansed again and again and again. It, it didn't have a long-lasting effect. It would always run out. The point is, the ceremonial water... Uh, had its limitations in this area of spiritual clean, cleansing. Now, there's something symbolic and powerful <coughs> because Jesus is using these jars. He's using the cleansing water and he's turning it into wine. So he's turning the water that was used to cleanse them ceremonially and he's turning it into wine. Now, that's very interesting because uh, he's off and... This wine would be offered to all the people at the wedding feast. So anyone at the feast was offered this wine, the best wine. Now, it wasn't the, even, even the, the, the steward or the master of the, the festival said, this is the best. This is the best. And so he takes this ceremonial water, he turns it into wine, and it's offered to everyone at the feast. Now, the point here is, John's trying to say is this, that Jesus is pointing to a future cleansing, not by water, but by his blood. He's also pointing to a future wedding feast for all who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So there's a, there's a picture here that John is saying, cleansing doesn't come from water, cleansing comes through blood. 
And this, there, there is going to be a feast. There's going to be the, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Jesus at the communion table says, I will not drink from this cup again until I do it anew with you in my Father's kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the feast. And all who drink of the blood are invited to this feast. So there's a lot of symbolic meaning in what Jesus is doing here. And so we see a picture that Jesus comes and brings cleansing for all of us. He takes our guilt, our shame. He takes away the power of sin and death. He, he is the only one who can fully cleanse us. The, the water jars will not fully or completely cleanse us. We need to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world, right? We need that spiritual clean cleansing that only Jesus can bring. And Jesus says, my hour, mother, has not yet come. The, the ultimate cleansing, the ultimate cleaning isn't going to be today. But it will point to a day coming up. So I want to ask you this weekend, have you tasted the wine by faith and found the forgiveness and freedom and cleansing that only He can give? The wine was offered to all at the festival. So that's the Lord of the wine. But he was also very interesting in the Lord of the whips. You see, John didn't just kind of throw these signs in randomly there were he said he said there were a whole lot of other signs i could have used but i chose these seven and i chose them for a reason now we go from him turning water into wine at a wedding feast to going to a temple and cleaning it out cleaning house and again there's that cleansing idea that john chapter 2 is just kind of ruminating with well i want to read this passage this is again john chapter 2 verse 13 and let me read it to you uh i don't have the page number but uh, it's pretty easy to find it was nearly time for the jewish passover celebration so jesus went to jerusalem in the temple area he saw merchants selling cattle sheep and doves for sacrifices he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money Jesus made a whip from some rope and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remember the prophecy from the Scriptures. Passion for my God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us, notice what he says, a sign, a miraculous. What sign do you have to prove that you should be able to do this? All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple. Probably opened his hands to the temple he was in. (coughs) Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So he goes from turning water into wine at a wedding festival to going into the temple and cleaning it out with a whip, like a crazy man. And the religious leaders are going, time out. Who gave you authority to go and do this? What are you doing? Now, what what does this story have to do with the wedding feast? Well, I think there's a tie there. And I think as we look at the purpose of the temple, we'll see that. The purpose of the temple, the reason God designed the temple was sinful man needed a way to approach God. Because we, as sinful 
people cannot approach a holy God. Therefore, God designed the te- first the tabernacle and then the temple as a way for us to approach God so that we could have a way of having, a pr- having the presence of God and bringing offerings for our sins and different things like that. Instead, what they did is they turned it into a way to make money. They excluded the Gentiles from their allotted spaces. <coughs> overall, what they were doing is they were destroying the overall purpose of the temple. And Jesus was rightfully angered and this uh, angered by this, and he, and he took action, and he got whips together, and he, got, he cleaned them all out. Here's the point I want you to see. The Jerusalem temple was a symbol of Jewish national and religious identity. Tragically, the very place where God's glory was to be revealed, the temple, had become a place... Uh, had become the site where Jesus was rejected by his own people, the Jews. The presence of God. This is God in his own temple. Cleaning it out, saying, look at what you've done to this holy place. And then they question him and say, who are you to clean out this place? (laughs) Yeah, that would be like you going to the house and finding it trashed, and people trashing it and going to them and saying, get out. What are you doing in my house? Why are you trashing my house? And having those people say, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> I'm the owner. It's my house. So they ask him for a miraculous sign from God to prove his authority. And Jesus points them to a new temple that will replace an old one. He says there's a new temple that's going to come and it's going to replace this temple. He points to his passion and he says in three days this temple will be destroyed and it will be raised up. And he wasn't, again, he wasn't speaking of the temple around him that he was in. He's speaking of his own body. And by the way, one of the charges that were brought against Jesus was that he claimed that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They were taken and literally he was speaking of his own body. Here's what we're going to find. We're going to follow the signs of John, John's gospel. The point I want you to see is I think that the reason this ties in with the, the wedding feast. The wedding, the wedding feast is, is essentially talking about a cleansing that can only come through Christ. And that cleansing comes to everyone who drinks from the wine that Jesus offers. It drinks from his blood. Remember when the, the disciples started, people started following him. And unless you drink my blood and eat my body, you can't follow me. That, that's the point he was making. The point he was making is unless you, you call upon me and find your forgiveness and freedom in me. You have no place in my kingdom. You have no place at the wedding feast. And, and so the, the temple, what, what Jesus is doing at the temple here is he's cleansing the temple, the place where God, God's presence is. They, they, they are trampling on the pr- pr- presence of God. Here's what we're going to find as we follow the signs in John's gospel. We're going to see that Jesus is going to destroy a temple that took 46 years to build and will build a better temple in only three days. We're going to see that he'll not only cure, <coughs> excuse me, he'll not only cure a royal official's son immediately, but he'll do it from a long distance. We're going to see that he will not only just heal a lame man, but one who has been invalid for 38 years. We're going to see that he will feed the crowds from a supply of only five small barley loaves and two small fish when it would have taken eight months wages for just uh, wages just for each person to have one bite. 
We're going to see that he will, uh, he will not merely give sight to a man born blind, but he will, give one, he will give sight to a man who is blind from birth. Not just a man who is blind, but one who is blind from birth. That he will not merely raise a dead man, but one who has been dead for four days. And the point there is, he was really dead. Dead, dead, you know. So how are we to take this and apply this passage this weekend? What, what, as we leave this place, uh, how are we to, to take it? And I want to key in on two phrases that we looked at. The first one is the words of Mary where she says, Do whatever he tells you. We would do well to follow Mary's advice to the servants. We are his servants and we are called to follow him. And our obedience is the true sign that we are one of his disciples. Jesus says, why do, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I've called you to do? Obedience is a sign of a disciple. We aren't to follow out of guilt or fear. We don't follow for reward. We follow out of a deep sense of love and gratitude for what he has done for us. <coughs> Secondly, I want to focus... Uh, on that last phrase where Jesus says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, what Jesus is essentially saying is the purpose of this house was for you to meet with me, to have my presence, to experience God, and you've lost it. And how do we miss him? How do we miss His presence? Well, we miss His presence when we approach Him religiously. You see, God wants your heart. There will be many people this weekend are going to go worship. They're going to go to worship services, and they're going to say prayers, and they're going to sing songs, and they're going to worship God. And they're absolutely going to miss God this weekend. Just like the people in the temple were missing the point. There's a very powerful passage in Isaiah 29.13. You might want to just write that reference down, Isaiah 29.13. This really, this will be a verse that you might want to reflect upon for your own life. The Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules Learned by rote. There are many people today that say, I'm a Christian. I'm a f- I-, I go to church every week. I say the prayers. I respond. I- I'm a good person. Whatever it is. And Jesus, God, Isaiah says, these people approach me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're just offering up mindless rote prayers. We miss Him when we approach Him religiously. Jesus says, stop, stop turning my Father's house into a marketplace. Stop missing me. We miss Him when we make the sacred common. Remember when Moses approached the burning bush and what did God say? He said, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. You don't know it, but it's holy ground. And I just want to suggest that there are many sacred opportunities, holy opportunities that we walk right up to and stomp over and walk past on a daily basis. We often miss the, the, the sacred moments and opportunities of life. 
We miss the God-given opportunities and appointments. We trot along without any thought of the sacred presence of the Holy Spirit and His guidance in our lives. And we make the sacred common. Often, we're surprised by Him. And when we, 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 we use this phrase a lot. We say, I hope God shows up. Listen, God doesn't need to show up. He's always there. God doesn't need to show up. The point we're trying to say is, I hope we'll show up and we'll figure out that this isn't some secular service that's going on right now. There's something sacred taking place here. The Spirit of God is moving in our presence right now and in our hearts, hopefully. Or are we just going to be ropefully following Him? And He says, don't make my Father's house, your body, this place, whatever you want to call it, don't make the sacred common. Don't do that. Oftentimes we've not tuned into the sacred presence of God. We're not in tune with His Holy Spirit. Celebrate the sacred with all your heart. Allow His Holy Spirit to steer your heart and direct your steps. You want to know something? It's interesting. Going back to, the, to where He turned the water into wine. It's very interesting what happened there. There's a really cool phrase, and I think this is the part of the story Carol likes the best, because I've heard her talk about it before. And I want to read you that verse. Um, I think it's verse 10. I'm not positive on that. You'll find it. This is John 2. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, not knowing where it had come from, and then in parentheses in our, in our Bibles, sometimes you're, you're, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, they knew. Some of you are not experiencing the miraculous signs that are going on right around you right now. You don't see them. You're missing it. And one of the reasons you're missing is because you're not serving Him. These servants were just doing what they were supposed to do. They were common Corinthian cobblers just doing what they were supposed to do behind the scenes. And they saw a miracle firsthand. These servants saw it. Everyone else at the wedding feast missed it. No one else saw it, but these servants saw it. And that's John's point. We often think, well, you know, it must be the pastors and the missionaries to get to see all the miracles. No, it's not. Here's a perfect example. The people that saw the miracle were the servants. They knew something miraculous took place there. They understood that, right? And so you, if, if you are willing to allow the Spirit of God to direct you and guide you and, and say, God, show me those, help me not to trod past those sacred moments, those burning bush moments. Help me to be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Help my heart to be open to you. And you may be surprised you'll see a lot of those sacred signs that Jesus is still doing today. Servants who were led by a spirit that day and this day get to see his hand working in miraculous ways. Here's the last way that we miss him. We miss him when we exclude people from the gospel. The money, you know, what Jesus was upset about, 
he really wasn't upset with the money changers changing money or them selling animals there. That really wasn't what he was upset with. He was upset with where they were doing it and how they were doing it. Because they needed to have money changers. They needed to have animals that were that were perfect animals for the sacrifice. So they were providing a service. That wasn't, that wasn't the problem. The problem was they were gouging. And the problem was they were in the court of the Gentiles doing it. This was the only place in the temple where the Gentiles could congregate and go meet God. And they were being pushed out of that area so that they could exchange and pay for the sacrifices that they were bringing. So the point that Jesus was angry about was not only were they inflating and doing some of that, but that the Gentile court, the Gentiles couldn't come. They were pushed out. The space that was allotted for the Gentiles, it was their opportunity to approach God. They were being excluded from experiencing God. They were shut out. And Jesus, don't make my temple, my Father's temple. Don't do that. So I started thinking, well, how do we shut people out today? How do we exclude people from the Gospel? Well, we exclude them because they have the wrong political view. You gotta be a Democrat, gotta be a Republican, gotta be a Libertarian, gotta be, you know, a Socialist. You gotta be this. If you're not this, then you're too far gone for, for God. Or we exclude people because, well, they hurt me. They said things, they did things that, you know, I could, I hope they, I hope they go to hell. Well, maybe you're not the one to share the gospel with them. But maybe you ought to pray for them, right? Maybe that's the step we ought to take, because maybe you're not in a place where you could share the gospel in a in a nice way. It might sound like this: better trust Jesus, or you're going to hell. I mean, that's essentially what uh, uh, what uh, Jonah did when he preached the message in Nineveh: better repent, or God's going to destroy you. You know, pr- pretty probably the worst message ever preached. And people are repenting and turning from God left and right. So. You know, God can use even bad messages. We, we, we may exclude people because they don't deserve the forgiveness of the gospel. Well, did we? If you think it, if you think that the gospel, you deserve the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. Maybe it comes down to this. We would never say this, but our actions maybe, you know, the, the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Maybe we just say, because you just don't matter. And, and, and how do we say that? We say, well, I don't really care. I'm too busy. I don't want to look stupid. Jesus said, the day that people reject you because you're sharing the gospel is the day you should rejoice. We got it backwards. We think the day that we're rejected by people, we're mocked and made fun of because we're sincerely trying to help them see that there is a Savior, the only Savior, the only way to to heaven, the only salvation that they desperately need and they don't even know it. The living water, the bread of life, and we show them that and they mock us and we say, oh, I feel terrible, my self-image is destroyed. And I just want to say, Jesus says, on that day, rejoice. Maybe you'd say, well, I don't know how. Well, that's a short-term problem that has a very easy solution. Figure it out. Get some help. 
Now, as we look at this and we leave this weekend, I don't want you to leave under the, the cloud of guilt. I want you to beat yourselves up. I want you to just rejoice in the cleansing that Jesus offers. That He says, this, these, this water that's turned into wine is my blood that will cleanse you. And I want, to, I want you to be set free from and find the forgiveness and freedom that only I can give. I want you not to fear sin or the the consequences of sin and death. I I want you to be set free from all that. I want you to walk with your head up. I want you to to know that there is a wedding feast that's coming. And anyone who drinks of this water will be invited, and it will be a great feast. So I want you to leave this place with hope. And I want to focus on one phrase that the, the director of the wedding feast says. He says, you've kept the best until now. You've kept the best until now. And the way I would translate that is, God always saves the best for last. We have not yet experienced the best. It's coming. That's our hope. The best is yet to come. And the, the, the director of the wedding feast basically says, this is the best. And Jesus says, oh, you haven't tasted real cleansing wine yet. You haven't been to the real feast yet. The best is yet to come. And that's why no matter what happens to us in this world, we know that there's another world, there's another feast, there's a cleansing, there's a forgiveness, there's a freedom that only Jesus can give. So we walk with our heads up and we have that freedom of forgiveness and we have that joy and we know that He walks with us and we look for those sacred moments and we're so grateful and thankful for what He's done. And that is the message of John chapter 2. That's what John wants us to see. That there is cleansing for those who need cleansing. That there's forgiveness for those who need forgiveness. That there's a wedding feast coming. And all who drink of His blood are invited. And all who are under His blood, His hour, His passion, His time, His time came and his, he, he said, Father, forgive them. And He said, it is finished. So we leave this place with our heads up, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we have the forgiveness and freedom that only He gives, knowing there's a banquet, there's a, there's a, the best is yet to come. He hasn't served the best wine yet. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this message and thank You for... John, in the way that he weaves these important symbolic and spiritual themes through, through his uh, gospel. We thank you that Jesus is the Lord of the wine and the Lord of the whips. We thank you that he is the only one that can bring cleansing. We thank you that he has promised that all who drink from his cup will find forgiveness and freedom. And not only that, they're invited to a wedding feast. Father, one day you're coming. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Jesus says, I will not drink of the cup of the wine again until I do it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Best is yet to come. 
Father, may we take this message and bring it to people who are still under the weight of sin, still offer meaningless words of worship to you with no heart. Use us, Father, to help them take one step closer to you. Help us not to... (coughs) Excuse me. Help us not to keep anyone from your presence. Because we judge they don't deserve it. Because we're afraid of our own self-image. Because we think they don't deserve for whatever reason. May you use us, Father, in powerful ways to bring people into your kingdom so that they can find the forgiveness and freedom and hope that you offer everyone who drinks from the cup of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.